Uh, I'd like to start this morning by sharing with you guys a little bit of my testimony, particularly my testimony with regards to my baptism. Uh, now, some of you already know this, but uh, I grew up in a Catholic home. Uh, so as an infant, I was uh, sprinkled with water, and, and that was considered my baptism. Um, it wasn't uh, until I went to college, though, that I really became a believer. I had heard the gospel for the first time in seventh grade, uh, but hadn't really responded to it in genuine repentance and faith until my first semester of my freshman year of college. Uh, And it was at that time that I started to wrestle with with the idea of my baptism because I knew that uh, baptism was an ordinance. It was commanded by Christ uh, in his great commission He called us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, I knew that it was an expectation. I knew it was a commandment. And so I wrestled with the idea of, was I I baptized um, as an infant, or did I need to be baptized? And um, it took me four years to work through that, that matter, because I found that uh, there was not a consensus on the issue. Even within Protestant evangelicalism, uh, there, was, there was not a consensus. You have Baptists who hold to believers' baptism that believe that it should be performed only once someone has responded in repentance and faith to the gospel, that they have been converted, that they are now a believer, and then they are baptized. And then you have... Um, the camp that holds to something called paedo-baptism, or in other words, infant baptism, that says um, that you baptize the children, the infant children of um, people that are part of the church community. And uh, I wrestled with it for a long time because uh, I was talking to my friends, and some of my friends were in support of believer's baptism, some of them were in support of paedo-baptism, And even many of the theologians that I looked to for counsel, whether I was reading their books or uh, listening to their sermons, uh, there was an agreement in that area. It's like, what do you do when you have John Piper, Mark Dever, Wayne Grudem saying one thing, and then you have John Calvin and Tim Keller and Kevin DeYoung saying something else? What do you do in that situation? And so, um, ultimately, I um, turn to the Word, as as we all should. Um, And so, this morning, we're going to look at Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. And it's actually a privilege for me to preach on this text, on on this topic, because this was actually the passage that was instrumental and most significant in helping me come to the conclusions that I have on baptism. And um, as, as you could imagine, considering I am a member of a Southern Baptist church, uh, I, I did land on, in the camp of believer's baptism, and I was ultimately baptized on November 7th, uh, 2010, through this church. Um, and that was one of the best days of my life. Um, uh, but it's been incredible to learn about baptism and what... 
um, that teaches us about the gospel and what it reminds us about what Christ has done for us. And so uh, if you haven't already, turn to Colossians 2. And as I'm reading this passage, I want you to be thinking about what does it tell us about baptism and what does it look like to follow Christ in that? So follow along with me as I read this passage. It's verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So now I want right off the bat to make sure that my goal is comes across to you guys. I I don't want this to be a sermon where you just learn about baptism. I don't want this to be a sermon where you're just acquiring knowledge, you're learning different things about it, you're learning how to understand and articulate your own position on the matter well. It's like, I want you to do that, but that isn't my end goal. Um, I want, as you learn and know and come to a better understanding of those things, I want that to lead you towards worship. I want that to compel your hearts towards marveling at who Christ is and what he has done for you. So my prayer for the sermon is that you would be led into worship as you learn more about baptism and what it looks like to follow Christ in it. So to follow Christ in it, we must understand what it is and how it's to be practiced, how it's to be performed. The conclusion that I'm going to show you this morning is this. Baptism is both a representation of our conversion through faith in Christ and our initiation right into the church. So there's a twofold conclusion that I'm talking about today. It's a representation or a symbol of our conversion, and it's our initiation right into the church. To see both of those, we're first going to establish what the context is of this passage. Um, and to see both, uh, to then we're going to look at each of those two aspects of Baptism. So baptism as representation, baptism as an, as an initiation rite. Um, then we're going to consider how it should be performed in light of those things. And then we'll finish by thinking about what that means for all of us. So, um, and that, that's considering the question, how does a correct view of baptism lead us to worship? So first, though, we're going to set the stage by establishing the context that we have here in our passage now, in this particular passage, I mean, anytime you look at the word, context is key. Context is vitally important. Um, in this particular circumstance, though, it's, it's pretty, uh, 
I mean, it's even more important because when it comes to the specific verses on baptism in this passage, verses 11 and 12, they've been interpreted a number of different ways throughout the church history. You'll see both paedo-baptists and, and just Baptists that believe in believers Baptist, you'll see them both use this passage to argue their points. Um, therefore, to understand what Paul is really saying here is key so that we can understand really what the verses are telling us, that we're not just taking them out of their context, but we're we're interpreting them in light of it. We could make them say whatever we want. Instead, we want to consider them in the context of the greater passage that they're a part of. They're not distinct, and they're not independent verses on their own. To understand what Paul is saying about baptism, we must understand what he's saying overall. Uh, You kind of want to think about this as what he's saying about baptism is a piece of the puzzle that he's putting together here, the argument that he's putting together. So look with me again at verse 8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul begins this section of his letter with a warning. He's trying to combat something here. He's trying to counter something. There's apparently an idea that's traveling throughout the Colossian church that's threatening the spiritual well-being of the various church members. Whatever those ideas or philosophies are, they're deceptive, they're leading them astray. Uh, Though they may appear to be good ideas, um, they're actually in opposition to Christ and the gospel. This This is a crucial verse because it sets the stage for the rest of the passage. Paul just warned the Colossians to avoid false teaching. And what does he do next? He begins by reminding them what the truth is so that they know the standard to compare the false teaching to. So he's saying, there's a false teaching. Don't be led astray by it. So here's the truth. And that's what we're going to look at next. So look now with me at verses 9 and 10. It says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So this is where we get some insight into what those false teachings actually were that Paul is combating. Verse 9, and this is in fact one of the biggest themes throughout the whole letter uh, to the Colossians, is that Paul is reminding them that Jesus is is Lord above all because he is God himself. He is preeminent, because the full power of God, the full glory of God resides within him. Just think about Paul's incredible praises of Christ in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Um, It talks about he's the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him and for him. In him, all things hold together. Jesus is Lord over all things, and he lacks nothing. In fact, nothing exists that he does not already possess himself. His lordship is is complete and total over all creation. So, why does that matter to the Colossians necessarily? That's where verse 10 comes in. It matters because they're united with him. Paul is reminding them that not only is Christ fully and completely God, but they are united with him and therefore they lack nothing. They were completely filled because they were united with him, with God. 
the Colossians had everything they needed in Christ. Paul was reminding them of this. This is what he's trying to help them remember. The false teachings that they were being fed were lies meant to make them think that Jesus was not enough. Verse 10 mentions that the lies were according to human tradition and the elemental spirits. That could be a number of things. Perhaps the teachings called the Colossians to perform certain rituals or do certain acts so that they could be saved. Um, In that case, something was needed in addition to Christ for salvation. Um, That's not... That's not acknowledging his, his lordship his, um, the, and the totality of it. Um, or maybe the teachings called the Colossians to worship other gods or other spiritual entities. Either way, Paul wanted them to know that Christ was God, and since they were united with him, they lacked nothing. He was their sufficient savior. Christ fulfilled all that needed to be done for their salvation and reconciliation to God, and only Christ could do it because he alone on earth is supreme. Only he can be the mediator as both God and man. So that's our context. When Paul begins talking about baptism here, that's the idea that he's trying to reinforce. Baptism is supposed to reinforce the notion that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we lack nothing because we are united with him. So it's pretty remarkable that though Paul isn't specifically trying to give us here a thorough explanation for baptism, he still accomplishes to lay more than enough of a foundation for us on what it is and how to understand it. So let's look at what baptism actually represents. And as we're going to see in these coming verses, this is where we get to the heart of what it means for us to follow Jesus in baptism. We should already be able to see before looking at the coming verses that Paul is already firmly rooting the idea of baptism and what it is with the gospel. The whole reason he is bringing it up is to address how the Colossians were connected and united with Christ. This is only possible because of the gospel. He is reminding them of who Christ is and how they are united with him. That is the work of the gospel in their lives. Baptism helps remind them of that and reminds us of that as well. So let's look now at verse 11. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we see verse 11 starts with, In him also. Um, That connects what he is about to say with what he just said. So he's continuing that same train of thought that he was just saying. He's, he's elaborating on the idea that Christ is Lord and we lack nothing in him. He just ensured us that in Christ we have been filled completely and lack nothing. Um, here, Paul is further explaining what is true of us because of our union with Christ through the gospel. So he's giving us two metaphors here. The first one he uses to describe part of the effects of the gospel in our union with Christ. So first he's going to start with the metaphor of circumcision, and then he's going to talk about baptism. So first we're going to look at circumcision. Notice what Paul is talking about here in verse 11. He's not talking about a physical circumcision. He's referring to a spiritual one. He's talking about a circumcision of the heart, one made without hands. 
then that, of course, begs the question, what is a spiritual circumcision then? Well, just like a physical circumcision is a removing, cutting away of the skin, a spiritual or heart circumcision involves the cutting away of one's spiritual flesh. Um, it's a removal of our sinful nature. This is the circumcision that Christ performs on all who are united with him in the gospel. Paul doesn't leave us with just that metaphor, though. He connects the spiritual circumcision to another metaphor. They go hand in hand. The second one further and ex- expands and develops the first. And with the second metaphor, he finally brings baptism into the, fi- into the picture. So with the first one, he's talking about removing our sinful nature. He's talking about taking away the mastery of our sin over us. Um, we were once apart from him, and in that we were controlled and mastered by our sins. We were enslaved to the, the idols that we worshipped, even if we didn't recognize it. But Christ removed that control. He removed that power that they had over us. It's, that's not to say that we're not, um, that we stop sinning outright and that sin doesn't have um, sway and influence over us anymore. Um, because it does. We still experience sin. We're still tempted by it. We still do it. But the absolute control and mastery over us is gone. We can now worship God, um, whereas before we couldn't. So now Paul is expanding on that with the next one. So follow along with me as I read both his ver- verses 11 and 12 and pay particular attention to verse 12. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is finally where we get to address the question, what is baptism? Everything that we've talked about before has built up to this, but now we actually get to answer that question. Baptism is the second metaphor that Paul's using to describe what is true because of the gospel in our lives. It explains what Christ did for us to unite us with him and how that union happens. So following Christ in baptism means that we're identifying with him in his burial and resurrection. That's what the act Represents. We're following Christ in baptism, not simply because he was baptized by John the Baptist and we're just following his example. It's much more than that. We follow him in baptism because he died on the cross and was resurrected three days later. That is the true baptism that Christ himself experienced. And that's what we want to identify with. That's what we're showing we identify with when we are baptized. Listen to what Jesus himself says to James and John when they asked him if they could sit beside him in glory. This is in Mark 10, verses 38 and 39. It says, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism, With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Jesus is using the language of baptism here to refer to his suffering and death. He's referring to the point that he would go to the cross and that he would suffer and be persecuted and be put to death. And 
he's letting them know that as his disciples, they would, be, they would suffer and they would be persecuted as well. The disciples do not understand their request for glory is a request for suffering and persecution as well. And then think, think about Luke 12, verse 50. In it, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Here he's talking about the same thing. He's not talking about the baptism that John the Baptist performed on him. That had already taken place. And why would, why would that distress him? That was an incredible and momentous event. He's talking here about the baptism of his death on the cross. He's, ba- he's talking about a baptism of being, of suffering horribly, being killed and suffering the full wrath of God. That's what he's talking about here. When we practice baptism, we're publicly, publicly, excuse me, publicly acknowledging that Christ experienced something far worse on our behalf that we, than we can experience. We are saying we are being submerged in water and raised up, and we're only experiencing that because Christ suffered so much more on our behalf. He went to the grave, he was buried, but he conquered death and was raised again. We're acknowledging, acknowledging that he went to the cross and was wrongfully crucified and buried. He died but was resurrected by the Father three days later to confirm that he had conquered death. In baptism, we're publicly rejoicing in the knowledge that Christ's burial and resurrection was effective for us too. Though we ourselves have not faced the cross, the effects of it are nevertheless real for those who repent and have faith in Christ. Now, look at verses 13 through 15 in Colossians 2. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ died because we were dead in our sins. He took death upon himself and defeated it so that we could be made alive together in him. Baptism signifies far more than just Christ circumcising our hearts, though it does include that. Baptism signifies the work that Christ did to free us from the penalty and debt that we accrued for our sins. We are made alive and justified in him. He nailed our sins to the cross so that our legal penalties and debt were left there too. And not only that, Christ's sacrifice and resurrection meant that he also defeated demonic powers. That's what verse 15 is referring to. The rulers and authorities that it's referencing, um, scripture oftentimes uses that to reference um, Satan and just spiritual demons or or ungodly spiritual entities. Um, Christ was victorious over them and shamed them by confirming his lordship over them and all creation and by subverting their plots against mankind. Try as they might, they cannot thwart his will and plan. And the day will come when they will also be cast into, into hell. 
themselves. All of that is what baptism signifies. We go from death to newness of life in Christ. We can look forward to the hope that we will be resurrected in glory when he returns. Baptism signifies the total of all that Christ has accomplished for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. It signifies the results of the gospel in our lives. As Paul says, baptism represents a powerful working of God, something that none of us could achieve on our own. This isn't something that you can do for yourself. This isn't something that you can do for someone else. We would all be left dead in our sins without Christ accomplishing these things. And we recognize and rejoice in that when we are baptized. Praise God that he has done this for us. But look back at verse 12. That's where the connection to the gospel is undeniably confirmed. It says that we are buried and raised with him through faith. Baptism is meant to follow and be an external demonstration of the internal change that happened when we were united with Christ through our faith in him. The two are intimately linked together. Our conversion and baptism, they're supposed to go together. It's the closest thing that we have to a physical manifestation of our, of our conversion. Um, we see this over and over again in the books of, of Acts when men and women were baptized shortly after repenting and believing. It was an expectation. It was, um, it was just what, what you do. It's, it, it's what Christ commanded. The Bible does not teach baptismal regeneration, which is the belief that baptism is necessary for salvation. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that Scripture very closely links the event and work of the gospel in our lives. So once the gospel has changed us, once we are converted in Christ, then baptism should follow. It's an expected and key event in the process of conversion. It should not surprise us then that Christ makes it a point to mention it in his great commission, as I mentioned earlier. Refusing to be baptized is a sign of one's refusal of Christ and the work that he has done for us. So what we've seen here in Colossians 2 is also addressed by Paul in his letter to Romans in chapter 6. So let's go there. Uh, because this passage is so helpful, I'm actually going to read the whole thing. Um, so it's verses 1 through 11 in Romans 6. <clears throat> okay, Romans 6, verses 1 through 11 say this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we see the same thing here that we did in Colossians 2. Paul is explaining that our baptism signifies our transfer from the realm of sin to the realm of righteousness and life in Christ because Christ made that journey himself through his death, burial, and resurrection. And we know that that he is speaking to those who have been converted through faith because chapter five speaks extensively on that matter. I mean, we read a passage from Romans five earlier. Paul argues in that chapter that faith is the means through which we are reconciled to God and justified and how we will receive his blessings. And so baptism should follow faith, not be preceded by it. Because it is connected to our conversion, it is a display of the conversion that has already taken place in us. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's not a conversion that... Uh, it's once and done, but the effects of it happen throughout our, the rest of our lives. So what does all of this mean? It means that baptism is an event performed after someone is converted through faith in Christ, and the act is meant to signify and represent all that took place in that person when he or she was converted. The act is a symbolic portrayal of that person being united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection into new life, as I've already been saying. It makes sense, then, that Paul utilized baptism as his metaphor here in Colossians 2. I said earlier that the metaphors that Paul used were meant to reinforce that Christ alone is Lord and that we therefore lack nothing when we are united with him. What better metaphor, then, to use than the one thing that represents everything that has been done for us and given to us by Christ through the gospel. Now that we've established what baptism signifies and represents, it's important to determine what its functional purpose is. Its purpose is not just to be a symbolic act by a new believer. Yes, it is a symbolic act. It does um, display and uh, and represent the gospel's change in our lives, Um, but it is not just that. It's more than that. It's an initiation right into the church. So seeing baptism as an initiation right into the church follows closely behind our understanding of it as a representation of our conversion. Considering what we've already learned and then consider, so consider what we've already learned and then add to that 1 Corinthians 12 verses 12, chapter 12 verses 12 through 14. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Paul also says in Colossians 1, verses, verse 18, he says this of Jesus, and he is the head of the body of the church. Paul is saying that when we are united with Christ, we become members of his body. He's the head and we make up the body parts. But let's stop and think through all of the information that we now have. 
if baptism represents our conversion and that conversion, that conversion experience entails us being united with Christ, then our conversion also entails us being united with his body, which is the church. Baptism is our initiation right into the church because our, our conversion not only establishes a new relationship between us and God, but it establishes a new relationship with us and God's people. You can't be united with Christ without being united with the people that are also united with him. Baptism functions as an initiation rite because it is your public pronouncement that you are joining the church to worship and serve Christ in his mission because you are now united with that church through your faith in Christ. That is the understanding that Paul had of baptism. It would have been a foreign concept to him to have someone consider himself or herself a part of the church having not been baptized. A choosing to not be baptized was a choosing to not be associated with the body of Christ. In our individualistic society today, it's easy to make our baptisms just about us and our private relationship with Christ while totally ignoring the fully biblical understanding of baptism and its community-based nature. Baptism is our initiation right into the church as the body of Christ, and it must be understood as such. This idea is implicit and assumed in Colossians 2. Hopefully now that we've established what baptism rightly is, you're wondering how it should be performed. I mentioned before there's Believer's baptism, there's paedo-baptism. How should it be performed? This is where we finally conclude what we can follow. This is where we finally conclude how we can follow Christ in baptism because there are, in fact, right and wrong ways to practice it. Scripture doesn't give us specific instructions in some regards, but it does give us many models and examples of, of it as well as a good foundational understanding of what it is and what's being achieved through it, as we've already seen. It's a representation of our conversion. It's an initiation rite. With all that information, we can, we can establish proper procedures for baptism um, that are meant to be a faithful following of the biblical teaching on the matter. Without explicit instructions, that's, that's what we should be striving to do. The following procedures are how, um, how baptism should look in light of biblical teaching from what we've seen in Colossians 2. So I've got, I've got five of them. It says, the first one is that it should be done in the name of the triune God. Now, Jesus commanded this in the Great Commission himself. He said to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this should make sense because all three persons of the Trinity play a necessary and crucial role in our conversion. Without the Father's election, without the Son's substitutionary atonement, without the Spirit's regeneration of our hearts, none of us would be converted and united with Christ. Baptism would represent nothing, and there would be no church to be initiated into. Also, it should involve submersion, full submersion into water. Every example in scripture that we have of baptism involves that very thing. Um, When Jesus was baptized, it said that he had to come up out of the water because he had been submerged into it. And that's when the spirit descended upon him. 
This mode of baptism is the only one that makes sense in light of the passage that we've looked at in Colossians 2. The idea that baptism represents Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, the submersion into the water signifies his burial. He's buried in the tomb. And then we're raised up out of the water. That represents his resurrection out of the grave. That's the only mode of baptism that makes sense in light of what it signifies. Sprinkling with water, another mode that you see churches using for baptism does not adequately symbolize conversion, nor, is, nor do we see it really practiced in the New Testament church in, in passages of Scripture. Third thing, um, it should be performed in the local church. Given that baptism is our initiation right into the church of Christ, it only makes sense that it would be performed within that context, in the context of the local church, which is the earthly manifestation of Christ's body. Being baptized outside of the local church undermines the purpose of the act itself. It should also be, fourth, performed only once. If baptism were nothing more than a symbolic act to signify the work of Christ in us, then there would be no problem with someone being baptized numerous times. In fact, I would think in some instances you might encourage that because it would help someone recall and be reminded of the work that God has done in them. But it does not just represent that. It's not just a symbol. It's more than that. It's an initiation right into the church. So it should only be performed once since we're united with Christ and brought into his body once and for all. One does not need to be reinitiated into something that he or she has never left. When we are converted and we're united with Christ, our conversion cannot and will not be reversed. This should be a tremendous relief to us. Therefore, we can rejoice in being baptized only once, knowing that what has been done by Christ for us and in us will never be undone. And another thing is we don't see people being baptized multiple times in Scripture. And the final thing is that it should be performed after conversion only. It should be performed only after someone has repented and believed in Jesus Christ. We saw earlier that baptism is meant to be performed after one is already converted, and that's for a number of reasons. For one, Colossians 2, verse 12, as we've already seen, states that we're raised through Christ through faith. Faith must precede our baptism then. Um, faith is necessary for one to have received the gift that baptism represents. It would be an empty ritual for an infant or for anyone else who does not have faith in Christ. Also, allowing one who is unconverted to be baptized is equivalent to allowing one who is unconverted to be considered a member of the church, since it's an initiation rite. That cannot be possible, though, because that would mean salvation could be obtained by a means other than faith in Christ. That would be a rejection of the gospel and a rejection of the lordship of Christ. Now, specifically regarding paedobaptism, one author puts it well. To baptize infants apart from faith threatens the evangelical foundations of evangelicalism. This is an awesome statement that stands up under scrutiny. For in scripture, baptism is regularly linked with admission into the people of God, the church of Christ. The fundamental teaching of the gospel is that human beings can be right with God only through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Infant baptism compromises that teaching by counting infants as members of the church, either via sacramental theology, the alleged faith of the infant, presumptive regeneration, the faith of the sponsors, or covenant theology. So given what we saw earlier regarding the context and overall point Paul is trying to make, um, make here in Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15, there's no exegetical exegetically faithful way to argue that this passage supports paedo-baptism that undermines Christ's lordship and sufficiency. Paedo-baptism or baptism of any unconverted people ultimately undermines the gospel itself because it seeks to include within God's covenant community those who are not truly converted or saved by grace. It creates a mixed community of faith. It portrays the body of Christ as being made up of believers and non-believers alike, which is a notion supported nowhere in Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that non-believers shouldn't be here on Sunday mornings and be in our community groups and be a part of the church life, but it is something different to say that that person is a member of the church and the church is... um, it would affirm that that person is a child of God and a fellow member of that body. Now, I recognize that many of you here, including all of the members of the church, and that includes the members of the church, have been baptized according to to these procedures, according to these, these ideas that I just described. You could not be a member of Redeemer otherwise. So what does all of this mean for you? What should you take away from this? And how should those of you who haven't been baptized respond to it? This is where we get into the implications of it. If you have not been baptized because you are not a believer, then repent and put your faith in Christ. He really did go to the cross for your sins so that you could be free from them, as well as the the debt and penalty that you've accrued for yourself um, from them. Acknowledge your sinfulness and trust that his sacrifice for you was sufficient and complete so that you could be united with him and raised into newness of life. Christ really did accomplish that for you and placing your faith in him, trusting him that he is capable of doing that and did that, that does make that effective for you. That does bring you out of death into the newness of life with him. If you have any questions about what that means, Don't hesitate to ask me or anyone else in the church about your questions that you have. We would love to answer. Hopefully one day you will be able to be baptized and to rejoice in knowing what the Lord has done for you. If you're a believer and have not been baptized as a believer by submersion in the name of the triune God, then then get baptized. We would love to baptize you here in the church. Don't let the thought that you've waited too long to stop you. Don't let the thought that it's, it's not a big deal, let, don't let that stop you either. Neither of them is true. It, it, took me, it took me four years to come to a conclusion on what, on the fact that I had not been baptized legitimately. Um, and I know some people have wrestled with it for far longer than that, but... I would far rather obey later than never obey at all. It's a command given to us by Christ in the Great Commission. So we want to follow him in obedience um, as a display of worship and appreciation for what he has done. 
Many of you here, as I've already said, have already been baptized. So how is this relevant to you? First, I would encourage you to encourage others that haven't been baptized but do know the Lord, that have believed, that do have faith, that have been converted. Encourage them to come to a better understanding of what baptism is and then pursue that themselves. Talk to them about it. Answer their questions. Help them work through that. I know I needed that. And so be that support and help for others. And then most importantly, worship. Worship the Lord. Remember, remember what my goal was for this sermon. It was that we would be led in worship. Remember that baptism represents incredible things that Jesus has done for us. Rejoice in what Christ did, is doing, and will do in your life. Take a moment right now to, to think about what the Lord's work has looked like in your own life. I know for me, before becoming a Christian, I was mastered by a whole host of different sin struggles. Um, I, was, I was ruled by sexual sin. I was totally dependent on the affirmation and approval of others. Um, I was religiously focused on finding my worth in performance. Everything I did, um, I did it well, whether it was sports, academics, or anything. I felt like I had to be perfect at everything. I felt like I had to be the best, and I couldn't fail because I thought that was the only way that my life would have value. I was a legalist to the extreme, not to mention incredibly proud and pretentious, uh, though I tried my best to hide that because I also wanted the approval of others, so I didn't want to look arrogant around people, but in my heart, I was so arrogant. I was mastered and utterly controlled by my various sins. My identity was wrapped up in them. My sinful nature was like an infected, necrotic sore that was sending my whole body into septic shock. It was killing me, and I didn't even know it. I was dead in my sin, and I was totally blind to the fate that I was setting myself up for. I thought my life was fine and normal because I did not for a second consider my life in relation to God. The gospel changed that though. Because of the gospel, I have been set free from those sins. Christ has removed that infected necrotic sore that I had um, that was going to kill me. That doesn't mean that I've stopped struggling with sin. He, he knows that I, that I still terribly struggle with it. But... Those sins, those struggles don't control me any longer like they did before. Um, My identity is not wrapped up in them. I have a greater love now. It's not a love of idols. It's a love of Jesus Christ. I have a new life and serve a far better master. Unlike my idols, he is kind and compassionate and all-satisfying. He doesn't leave me empty and wanting more and always feeling like it's not enough. He's slowly but surely healing me. And one day, I will be able to fully appreciate and take pleasure in my God. My worship won't be corrupted and half-hearted anymore. It will be unadulterated, pure delight in him. There's nothing more than I want in this life. There's nothing more than I want. And Christ ensures that that will be a reality for me one day when he returns. But how about you? I know that I'm not the only one that feels that way. I'm not the only one that longs for that. If you're united with Christ, that hope is yours. You were baptized because Christ died your death 
and was raised so that you could live his life. Rejoice in what he has done for you and persevere in fighting sin and pursuing godliness. Believe as Paul was trying to get the Colossians to believe that Christ is Lord over all and in your union with him, you lack nothing, including entrance into his church. Um, We've seen that in baptism as a representation um, and as an initiation rite. Find renewed strength in that knowledge each time you think about your baptism and the baptism of others. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for the gift and blessing of baptism. I thank you that you have given us this ordinance, you have given us this command so that we could be reminded of what Christ has done for us, what he sacrificed for our sake, Um, the fact that he is Lord, that he was sufficient, that he conquered death, that he has victory over sin and Satan. Father, you have given us baptism as a commemoration of that, as a remembrance of that. Um, as, and as an initiation, right, that we might enter your church and to rejoice in these things together. God, help us as we think on what Christ has done for us. Um, help us to, to encounter him, to experience him, to know the sweetness of the gospel, to, to not just intellectually know that, but to taste that. Um, God, we thank you for what uh, you have done for us. We pray this in the incredible name of Jesus Christ. Amen.